Hello and welcome to Leeds Voices, the weekly podcast brought to you by the University of Leeds. I'm Alex Regan and this week marks the 75th anniversary of the NHS and another health organisation that's celebrating 75 years in 2023 is the World Health Organisation. The international body is renowned for its work in eradicating smallpox, polio and most recently its efforts during the Covid pandemic. Leeds has a long history of its alumni working for the organisation, including Dr Ian Smith. Ian completed his medical degree in 1980 before returning in 1994 to study a master's in public health. His time at Leeds has led him to the heights of the World Health Organisation, where he worked as a senior advisor to the body's director general. Jill Bullock spoke to him earlier this year about his time at the WHO, his work during the pandemic and the importance of the organisation globally. When I was at medical school, I was in the old medical school in Thorsby Place. Um, that was it was immediately, I think, I'm not sure it was the year or two years after we finished there. We were one of the latest batches to uh, to to come out of out of the old medical school. Wonderful old place. Uh, uh, many, many happy memories of, of, well, many happy and unhappy memories of that time, as you can imagine. Um, but of course, we were over at LGI and we were over at Jimmy's and, and in other hospitals in the, you know, across Yorkshire, really, in terms of doing our, our clinical um, attachments. Yeah. My first jobs were at, first at Dewsbury, Dewsbury General, and then at Wakefield, at Pinderfields. And then I came back to Leeds. I did uh, six months casualty at the LGI and then... Um, a year's paediatrics at Jimmy's um, before my wife and I, we went out to Nepal in 1984. So I'd, I'd really only done a relatively little in terms of experience in the UK. We went out to Nepal in 1984 and we ended up staying there until 1999. So we were there 16 years. I ended up working in, the, in Kathmandu on TB, continuing to work on TB, and then got my job gradually got absorbed into WHO. So I I, be, I started working with WHO from 94, but actually became a staff member in 98. So as the senior advisor, what sort of things do you do? First of all, I just say it's an immense privilege to to do this. I mean, it's, it's the role that I really started out in this office, in the office of the DG back in 2003. Um, so uh, it, it, it really is the role of being able, well, it's the opportunity, first of all, to be able to see the entire work of the organisation at all levels, right down to the community level, our working countries, our work at the regional level, our global work, which is largely around the normative aspects of of global health uh, standards and, uh, and so on policies, but also increasingly around the operational work that the organization does to support countries within their development of their health systems. So it's a it's a privilege to be able to sort of have that bird's eye view of all that's going on in different parts of the world through through the World Health Organization. And that role then of, of an advisor, it means that not necessarily managing any one particular part of the organization, but advising, but 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 aiming to provide helpful um, feedback or uh, advice or ideas to the DG and to other senior staff. It's not just to the DG, but to work across the organisation to encourage uh, the organisation to work coherently and effectively, to encourage the organisation to be true to its values and principles um, uh, and its constitutional values and principles, which are really quite quite wonderful and what is 
not read the WHO constitution, I would strongly encourage them to read the first two pages. It's really quite quite wonderful language about the purpose of the extraordinary purpose of this organization to deliver, you know, health for all peoples. I'm heading up the what's called the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, which is a um, an independent body uh, established by WHO and the World Bank by the um, uh, DG of WHO, Dr. Tedros, and uh, the then president of the World Bank, uh, Jim Kim, uh, back in 2018, as a body which is responsible for monitoring uh, the state of the world's preparedness for health emergencies and advocating then for action to address those, um, to address the weaknesses that are that are that are obvious in, in in health emergencies. The GPMB's first report before I before I got involved, the first report came out in the end of 2019 and um, in September of that year and predicted that there would be a major global pandemic and predicted that it would cause immense um, health, uh, immense numbers of deaths and predicted that it would cause immense economic damage and of course it has uh, and that came out just weeks before covid broke out which of course led to all sorts of conspiracy theories about whether the gpmb knew something that the rest of the world didn't but in actual fact it was the gpmb was simply stating the obvious the world was not prepared for a pandemic and covid did come along but it simply demonstrated what really was should have been obvious to all but but people had Leaders have got into this cycle of panic and neglect. You know, everybody puts a lot of energy and, and, and resources when there's a when there's a major um, uh, health crisis. But then everything, when it passes, goes back to the normal state of affairs, which is to ignore it. Um, and that's again, I think, what the GPMB is fearful now of happening is that though COVID still is around, the the general um, global sort of priority for dealing with pandemics is already being, other crises are coming out up front and center and the attention on pandemic prevention and preparedness is is, is rapidly decreasing. So it's critically important to maintain that, um, ma maintain that momentum and maintain that uh, sustainable investment and action in, in preparedness and um, prevention and preparedness. And that's what the GPMB continues to, to call for. I think the key thing about pandemics is is to make the point that these are, in a sense, they're existential threats to the world, to the globe. They, no one country can deal with it on its own, uh, and we're all in it together. It demands collective effort. No, you know, the classic saying, no one is safe until all are safe. So often people immediately go for, well, we need better systems, new technologies, and we therefore need lots more money. To, to, to build those systems and technologies, and they're the answer. And although they play a critical role, it's absolutely crucial that there is uh, there is investment in these systems and in these technologies and for the development of them and innovation. What was also clear is that the other side of it, the human dimension of, of, of pandemic prevention, preparedness and response was being ignored. And by that, I mean the leadership that is critically needed to ensure that capacities that you may have are used effectively in the event of a, a, a health crisis, but also that that um, engagement and information that's provided to people and communities is can be trusted 
uh, is presented in a way that doesn't appear to be blaming people, but is a way of encouraging and supporting and engaging with communities. It's contextually, um, uh, uh, it's, it's contextual uh, within society. And, 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 and so many countries miss that opportunity for looking at that human dimension. And so that's what we made a strong focus on in, in, our, in our work in 2020 when, when, when we were looking at that. And, and we also identified the, 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 the fact that you, you, we do need systems and financing and they sort of form one, as it were, uh, uh, axis. But you also need that leadership and commitment, leadership and community engagement axis. And where the two axes sort of cross is the point around, is is the issue of governance, good governance, and and we we made a very clear point at that time that it's essential that we have good governance to bring together leaders, communities, systems, and their financing, and that without that good governance, including coordination within countries, but also between countries, then again we're not going to get the the the, the results that we're looking for when we face another crisis of this nature. So though that was some of the work that we did in, in, in 2020, and that largely continued into 2021. The work has adapted, has changed a little bit, has evolved a little bit since then, because now that people are now giving attention much more, not so much just to the present, but also to the future, as to where the, what the world wants to be like in the future, prepared for a, another pandemic. What do we need to put in place to be prepared? And there's a lot of interest around the reforms of the global health architecture for pandemic prevention, preparedness and response. Um, there's the work ongoing to, to, to uh, negotiate a new treaty for pandemic prevention, preparedness and response here at WHO. There's work around amendments to the international health, health regulations, which are the sort of regulatory framework for particularly for surveillance and early response and, and, um, uh, and sharing of information. There's, um, there's ongoing work around the, the building political commitment, and there's a high level meeting on pandemic prevention, preparedness and response at the head of state and head of government level being held in New York in the General Assembly in September this year. There's work around a, a new pandemic fund at the World Bank to make sure that there are investments flowing into preparedness um, in, in countries, particularly at the national level. There's work around development of a new countermeasures platform for, um, for vaccines, drugs and, and, um, uh, and diagnostics and other health uh, medical um, uh, equipment that's technologies that's, that's being developed to and try and get to a state where we can get equitable access to these measures, countermeasures, when a, a new health crisis occurs. One of the key things we've seen in this crisis is that equity just gets pushed to one side. Uh, you know, the, the way that um, the way that vaccines have been developed over the last in this pandemic has been quite extraordinary, amazing and very success, wonderful success story in terms of the rapid development of effective, safe vaccines. When you then look at how those vaccines have been used, it's exactly the opposite story, um, gross inequities in access as um, as countries have the richer countries have just bought up supplies. Uh, some manufacturing countries have closed their borders and um, restricted the free flow of, of, of goods, have, have the export bans on them. Uh, men, 
pharmaceutical sector has made billions out of out of out of the sale of these vaccines. You know, it's it's just it's a horrendous story of of everything going wrong when it comes to ensuring that the people who need them the most get the get access to the measures they they the countermeasures they need. So that's the that's that work around the countermeasures platform that delivers equitable access is is key and there's a lot of work ongoing around around surveillance as well to make sure information is shared effectively rapidly and is used appropriately so this year is around how can we make sure that everything goes in the in the right direction so ian when you're doing this it, it are you getting where's the expertise coming from obviously the who and uh the gpmd b have expertise. I know at the University of Leeds, there's there has been some research into um, persuading people to do the right thing, like what, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. the right thing well, may not be the yeah, it's, it's a good point. And, and I think what, 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 first of all, everybody's aware that a pandemic of this size and any major health emergency goes way beyond the health sector. It's It involves many other sectors education environment animal health uh, finance and economics uh, trade and travel you can't deal with it purely through a health sector approach you have to go beyond it which means that you need to have the expertise you can draw on the expertise and capacities of those other sectors health needs to lead absolutely clearly it's a health crisis it needs to be coordinated and led from the health sector but it needs to be there needs to be mechanisms put in place to make sure that all these other sectors are brought on board. As in any crisis, you've got to have leadership, but you've also got to have broad uh, action. So, what 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 what's needed therefore to to assess and to monitor whether this is working effectively is multi-sectoral uh, monitoring. And what we have within the board, for example, we do have health experts, but we also have economics experts. We have animal health experts. We have uh, people with experience and, and leadership experience in socioeconomic development, in gender and human rights, uh, in R&D. It's got to go, we, we, we've got a board of about 15 people, 15 to 18 people. Membership is changing actually at the moment. So, But, it, but they come from a very wide range of sectors and, and wide range of experience. So that means they can look at what's going on beyond health. But at the same time, we draw on the expertise from these different organisations working in these areas, UNICEF, uh, World Organisation for Animal Health, World Bank and IMF, uh, etc., to make sure that we're pulling in the expertise and the evidence and the data that can help us understand fully whether the world is taking the right steps and moving in the right direction uh, in, a, in a coherent way. So, so I presume then that... Um because you're able, you have access to all these people and they're all involved, all these organizations. Well, the WHO, what they say has weight. Yeah. Like one would hope that governments would listen. Um, and therefore, you know, what you're doing, hopefully people will listen to, but you have found in the past, they don't always. That's been, that's, that's a challenge in every walk of life. <laughs> it's not unique to... WHO into health problems. Um, it's just as prevalent in climate change, in yeah. uh, economics, you know, in, in every area where there is a, 
where there is a challenge the world is facing and needs to work together and where it's not just going to be at a global level that the action is taken, where it has to be at the community level. In fact, everything begins and starts at the community level, particularly in health emergencies. You need to be addressing it at that at each level. Uh, you need to be ensuring that 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 aim of coordinating and ensuring that um, uh, everything happens in a coherent way needs to start at the community level and then and then, and then build up. So yes, it's a, it's a it's a critical area. One of the challenges that the world has faced over this pandemic has been the 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 massive sort of uh, the dam burst, as it were, of of information and misinformation as well, and uh, particularly through social media. They're not limited to that and how how best to address that without um, without interfering with people's rights, um, beliefs, um, and in a way that respects the individual. Uh, that, that's, that's the challenging thing. Uh, 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 and, and of course, there's no, no easy answer to that. Uh, some countries have taken steps which others would well, many would regard as being you know, denial of human rights in, in their restrictions on, on for example, on, on social media. Um, that doesn't necessarily help in any way. It's more about informing uh, a public, and, but engaging with uh, the public uh, and, and, and ensuring that people have access to the information that they need. And, uh, and But also trying to remove some of the, or trying to at least, perhaps remove is the wrong word, but trying to identify where clearly a, a information is being put around that is false and very often deliberately put around uh, as, as false information. That's where it becomes particularly challenging. So over the past 75 years, here's a big question. What impact has the WHO had? Enormous, I would say. Um, you know, I think that you can always, of course, look at some of the major successes that people often highlight when they talk about the work of, of WHO. The uh, obviously the the eradication of smallpox, um, the close to eradication of polio, the extraordinary decline in many infectious diseases, the um, the adoption of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which has contributed to a profound decline in, in use of tobacco in many, many countries. Um, you know, there's, there's a, you can go a long, long, long list of them, but, um, but I, would, I would make the case that, the, oh, and of course, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned this first and foremost, the whole work around Almaty on primary health care in the 1970s, you know, that really was so, um, uh, it was a it was a watershed moment, I think, for health in the world when uh, health for all became a goal. Health for all by the year two thousand, and primary health care was uh, clearly identified as the as the means to get there. The health for all is always going to be a our goal. It's always going to be something we are working towards that we progressively realised as uh, progressively realised, as some would say and that we should continue to work towards it. And WHO's role in that is, in a sense, to provide the, the direction of travel, uh, to provide the, the, to facilitate the movement in that direction by communities and countries and, 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 and the world as a whole. 
and and to uh, support countries in responding to the challenges that they face. So I would argue that it's as much about the, it's not so much the big wins that we should be focusing on, it's this constant support and enabling that WHO does through its work, very often at the country level, not so much the famous stuff that happens in headquarters in Geneva, but the work that goes on at the country level is really what I think we should be uh, highlighting as the contribution that WHO continues to make to the world. And I think it's so critically important now at this time in history as the there is a, as we've seen over recent years, there's been a, a general decline in the confidence of the world in the UN system and in multilateral, multilateralism generally to, um, to deliver uh, on improvements in, in, in our well-being. Um, and yet what's being proposed as an alternative is in a sense taking us back to what we had before WHO in a, in a sense of it all becomes about nationalism. It all becomes about me, a self, individualism, whether that be as an individual or as a, as a country. And if we've learned anything over the last century, it is that that approach almost always leads to disaster. We have to develop ways of working effectively together. We have to make commitments. We must maintain sovereignty, of course, but we have to find ways of enabling countries and communities to work together and, and, and not pursue a purely individual nationalistic approach. So that's why I think WHO is, is, is more important than ever before. Thanks very much for listening to Leeds Voices. It was presented by me, Alex Regan, and edited by Ed Newbold. It was produced by Jill Bullock. Leeds Voices is brought to you by the University of Leeds Advancement Team. You can follow us on social media at Leeds Alumni or email us at alumni at leeds.ac.uk. Thank you.